You may be seated. I'm going to hook on to some things that uh, we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. We've uh, been teaching a series on the healing atonement. And we want to continue along that line a little bit. So if you want to, turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. We'll use that for a starting point. But let me recap some things from the last couple of uh, Sunday morning services. The question is, and the question has raged among certain church circles for many years, is healing in the atonement? Now what that means is, excuse me, what that means is, the question is, was healing paid for when Jesus went to the cross? Now there's... A lot of churches, a lot of uh, church organizations and groups that fail to accept or refuse to accept what the Bible says about the healing work of Jesus, the healing power of God that's been made available to every one of his children. And one of the things that, uh, one of the questions that we posed in looking at the overall question is healing in the atonement. Did Jesus pay the price for sickness? Uh, Did he suffer the the penalty of sickness and disease to pay the price for healing? And the question was raised, if healing is not in the atonement, if if physical healing is not part of what Jesus paid the price for, then why are there so many examples in the Old Testament where healing is connected to the atonement? We looked at five different things where healing and the atonement were connected The first was the Passover. Now, we know that Jesus is the Passover sacrifice for us. Paul wrote that to the Corinthians. We know that the elements of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the the wine, represent his body and his spirit. He said so. So he's definitely connected to and and, uh, fulfilled the Passover. But when the first Passover was instituted, it brought healing to the people. It did the same thing 765 years later, according to 2 Chronicles chapter 30, when Hezekiah, as the king of Israel, reinstituted the Passover. Healing was made available to them. The Bible says about Israel, when God brought them out of Egypt, he led them forth with silver and gold, and there was not one people among them. Now, the crowd was estimated anywhere between 2 and 7 million people. If we take the low number as the correct estimate, How are you going to get uh, 2 million people together and nobody's sick? It had to have been a work of God. It had to have been a a supernatural work of God. Well, again, as I said, 765 years later, when Hezekiah reinstituted the Passover, Israel had gone into rebellion and had stopped carrying out many of the rituals that God had commanded them. When Hezekiah reinstituted the Passover, the Bible clearly says that healing was made available to the people, that God healed the people. Well, the next thing we looked at concerning the atonement was in Leviticus chapter 14 where it tells us about uh, when a leper is cleansed. And it goes into great detail, great detail, about all the things that had to be done and the way that they had to be done to make an atonement when the leper was, was healed. Now, in that case, it wasn't the atonement that healed the leper. But it was an atonement that was attached to and communicated to Israel that healing of leprosy, which was the dreaded disease 
of the ages. That when a leper was healed or cleansed, all these things had to be done to make an atonement. God was very specific about attaching healing of leprosy and the atoning work of the Old Testament sacrifice. The next thing we looked at was the year of Jubilee. You remember that Jesus uh, identified with the year of Jubilee. It, Jub the year of Jubilee came around every 50 years. And the, the important point, the phrase that's used over and over again concerning the year of Jubilee is where man was restored to his original possessions or his original possessions were returned to him. In the, the year of Jubilee, all debts were canceled. Everything that had transferred from the hands of the people of Israel into other people's hands was restored. Well, that's a type of us having our original position restored like Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden before sin. But Jesus identified himself with Jubilee. He said in Luke chapter 4, speaking in the synagogue in Nazareth, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight for the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. The acceptable year of the Lord was the year of Jubilee. Now the, the, the sequence of events that heralded the, the year of Jubilee, the 50th year, was first, it had to be on the Day of Atonement. All the Day of Atonement sacrifices had to be carried out so that the sins of Israel were symbolically taken away, borne away by the scapegoat, and then the blood of the Lamb was sprinkled on the altar. And that covered Israel's sins for a whole year. So the, the order of, of the year of Jubilee is the atonement had to be made. The day of atonement sacrifice had to be made. The trumpet was sounded, which is a type of preaching the gospels to the poor. And then the third thing was the year of Jubilee began then. So Jubilee was associated with everything that Jesus said when he went about doing good and healing all the people that were oppressed of the devil. The next one, the fourth one, was when the plague was, had come upon Israel. You may remember in Numbers chapter 16, it tells us about the sins of Korah and all those that attached themselves and joined themselves to him and the rebellious priests that went with him. It talks about how the earth opened up and swallowed them and their possessions, their families and everything around them and then closed back up together upon them. But when the people murmured at God's righteous judgment upon those that had rebelled, there was a plague, not a sickness, not a disease, but a destroyer, destruction that came through the camp. And Moses was only able to stop it by making an atonement. It says that he instructed Aaron to take a, a censer and fill it with incense. And Aaron ran through the camp, and the plague was stayed. He stood between the dead and the living. And the plague was stayed or the plague was ended. Well, why did he make an atonement? Because the atonement was the only thing that would forgive the sins and stop the destruction that was coming against the nation of Israel. The last one was in Numbers chapter 21, where the people were discouraged because the way of the wilderness was hard. And so they murmured against God and they murmured against Moses. And the Bible says that fiery serpents, poisonous snakes, came into the camp. Now, other scriptures tell us that the whole land of uh, the whole wilderness was full of fiery serpents. 
So apparently they had protection until they disobeyed and rebelled against God. But when the people recognized what they had done wrong in the, the punishment that it had brought upon them, they went to Moses and asked him to pray to God so that these things would be ended. So Moses was instructed by God to make a brass serpent and put it on a pole. Jesus identified with this serpent on the pole in John chapter 3, about verse 15, where he says, As Moses lifted the serpent of brass in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up from the earth. Talking about his crucifixion. So when Moses lifted up that brass serpent on the pole, the Bible says he made an atonement for them. Well, that was necessary because their sin had to be forgiven along with the healing that they were seeking for. So that brass serpent on the pole made an atonement. So there's five examples of where the atonement is used in the Old Testament that is fulfilled by Jesus in connection with healing of sickness and disease. Now let's go a little bit further. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Notice verse 16. I'm sorry, verse 13. It says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. This is why he did it in verse 14. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, and that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now look at verse 29 of that same third chapter. And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What promise? The promise that God made to Abraham. Now if we want to see what we were really redeemed from, again in verse 13 it says Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. We're going to have to find out what the curse of the law is. So look with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. The book of Deuteronomy is Moses' farewell address to the people. He's not going to be able to go into the promised land because he messed up one of God's types in the Old Testament. There were two times when Israel came to a place where there was no water. The first time Moses, by the instruction of the Lord, struck the rock and water came out. The second time, the people were murmuring and Moses got upset and God said, Speak to the rock, not hit it, speak to the rock. But Moses, because of his anger against the people, struck the rock the second time. And that messed up God's type. Now, the first type represents, the striking of the rock represents the crucifixion of Jesus. The second one, where he was supposed to speak to the rock, was a type of the church age where we receive and partake of the blessings of God by the words of our mouth. And so that was really important to God. The fact that Moses messed up the type and the example that was to be set. And so Moses is not going to be able to go into the promised land. But he's warning the people and he's encouraging them and he's telling them not to forget God and the things of God. Their parents in the previous generation had died in the wilderness by this time. And he's telling them what to do so that they could enter into the promised land. Now the church age is the promised land for us. All the blessings and benefits that God has provided for us come to us through faith because Jesus was smitten. Deuteronomy chapter 28, the first um, 13 verses of the chapter identify the blessings of obedience. But let's pick up in verse 15 where it talks about the curses. We're redeemed from the curse of the law, so let's find out what the curses are. 
Verse 15, but it shall come to pass if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes which I command thee this day that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. Cursed shalt thou be in the city and cursed shalt thou be in the field. Cursed shall be thy basket and thy store. Cursed shall be the fruit of thy body and the fruit of thy land, the increase of thy kind and the flocks of thy sheep. Cursed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and cursed shalt thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall send upon thee cursing, vexation, and rebuke in all that thou settest thine hand unto for to do, until thou be destroyed and until thou perish quickly because of the wickedness of thy doings, whereby thou hast forsaken thee. Now let me interrupt it right there to uh, point out what we've shared with you before. And don't just take my word for it. Check it out for yourself. Dr. Robert Young who was the author of the Young's Concordance and also had his own translation of the Bible. He was one of the foremost authorities on the Greek language for the New Testament and the Hebrew language for the Old Testament. And he said this. He made this comment. He said the Hebrew language has a permissive verb that the English language doesn't have, a permissive tense. Well, the translators in the King James translation is uh, uh, literally a transliteration. And what that means is they tried to translate word for word every place that they could rather than giving a description and, and expanding on phrases and, and so forth. So Dr. Young says this should literally or better be read and understood as the Lord shall allow, not cause, but allow. Well, if it's going to talk about sickness and disease, then we know God's not the author of sickness and disease. He can't be the author of sickness and disease because the Bible says he made everything that he made in the first six days. And after that, he made an end of, of anything and everything he created. So at the end of the six days of creation, God looked at it and said it was very good. In other words, it was a perfect existence for mankind. Well, where was sickness and disease? See, if God made sickness and disease, he's got to make it in those first six days or else the Bible lied to us. But there's no sickness and disease in those first six days. Sickness and disease came as a result of man's sin and the fallen condition of sin. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, by one man's sin, death entered the world, or sin entered the world, and death by sin. So sickness came as a result of the, the fall of man. So here it's telling us that God will allow these things through disobedience, but he's not the cause of these things. This world was established to obey God's word. Folks, let me say that again. You need to understand that. This world was made to, to obey God's word. That means when you speak God's word, you're operating according to the original design and intent of this creation. No matter how God's word may uh, contradict what we see in the physical realm, the world was made to respond to God's word. So here where it says the Lord shall send these things, it simply means he'll allow them. Again, we'll remind you of the last of the five examples we gave where the people of Israel murmured against God and against Moses and fiery serpents came into the camp. They recognized that the result that they got, the poisonous snakes that were biting and, and people and bringing them about their death, they realized that it was because of their own disobedience and their own sin. They said to Moses, we have sinned. Pray to God for us. 
So they knew that sin was the cause. You may remember in John chapter 9, it tells us about a man that was born blind. The disciples came to Jesus and said, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. They recognized that sin was the, the cause. Now, they didn't know if it was personal sin. They didn't know if it was the individual sin. And the devil will always try to tell you whenever you're attacked with sickness, he'll always try to tell you that it's your fault and you're the one that's done wrong. Well, even if that were true, and usually it's not, but even if that were true, forgiveness as well as healing was provided for by the work of Jesus. Paul, uh, John, what's his name? James said, James 5, verse 14. It says, the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. So here where it talks about God sending or causing or putting things upon people, it's a permissive verb. A permissive tense, not a causative one. Okay, let's pick back up in verse 21. The Lord shall make the pestilence cleave unto thee until he has consumed thee from off of the land whether thou goest to possess it. The Lord shall smite thee with a consumption and with a fever and with an inflammation and with extreme burning and with the sword and with blasting and with mildew and thou, they shall pursue thee until thou perish. Skip down to verse 27. The Lord will smite thee with the botch of Egypt and with the emeralds and with the scab and with the itch whereof thou canst be healed. Canst not be healed. The Lord shall smite thee with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart. And thou shalt grope at noonday as the blind gropeth in darkness. And thou shalt not prosper in thy ways. And thou shalt only be oppressed and spoiled evermore and no man shall save thee. Skip with me to verse 35. The Lord shall smite thee in the knees and in the legs with a sore botch that cannot be healed from the sole of thy foot until the top of thy head. Now skip with me to verse 58. If thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book. Well, it's the, it's the law then we're reading about, right? And these curses have to be the curses of the law. If thou wilt not obey, observe to do all the words of this law and that are written in this book that thou mayest fear this glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God. Then the Lord will make thy plagues wonderful, and plagues of thy seed, and even great plagues, and of long continuance, and sore sicknesses, and of long continuance. Moreover, he will bring upon thee all the diseases of Egypt, which thou wast afraid of, and they shall cleave unto thee. Now notice verse 61. Also every sickness and every plague which is not written in the book of this law, them will the Lord bring upon thee until thou be destroyed. So, folks, we can see there are 14 individual diseases that he mentions and identifies in those verses that we just read. But then he sums it up in verse 61 by saying also every other sickness is not mentioned. That's a part of the curse of the law, too. Now, why did God go into detail to tell us about these things? Well, it seems that he knew that throughout the church age, for hundreds and maybe even thousands of years, people would discount and deny that physical healing or healing for the physical body is a part of what Jesus paid the price for. But by doing this, by identifying specific diseases and then summarizing by saying also every other sickness and disease, known or unknown to man, that means that there's no modern day sickness. There is no present day sickness that is excluded from the curse of the law. And Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Well, if sickness is in the curse of the law and Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, then he's redeemed us from sickness. Isn't that right? 
Now, how did he redeem us? Well, let's go back to Galatians chapter 3 and read verse 13 again. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on the tree. So it's clearly talking about the redemptive work of Jesus being attached to the events surrounding his crucifixion, his death, and his burial, and his resurrection. We understand that, don't we? We understand that it was the crucifixion of Jesus, the price that he paid as our substitute that made the difference, right? Now look with me over to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53 is the messianic chapter. Everybody agrees that the work that Jesus would do and the fulfillment of prophecy that would come through his crucifixion is identified here in Isaiah 53. We'll pick up in verse 3. It says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The word sorrows is the word pains. If you look in your concordance, you may have an electronic Bible that you brought with you. If it allows you to search for all the places in the Old Testament that this word is used, you'll find out that it's most often translated pains. The next word that he uses, a man associated, a rejected, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This word grief is translated sickness in most places in the Old Testament. Now, folks, the translation is only as good as two things. It's based on two things. No matter what translation it is, no matter when it's made, a translation is, is based on two different foundations or two different legs. The first is the translator's knowledge of the language. If their knowledge of the language is not any good, then the translation is not going to be anything we could trust or rely on. But then the second leg is the translator's understanding of God. Because there are times where words are used that can mean completely opposite, have completely opposite meanings. For example, in the Old Testament where it says, I think it's Isaiah 45. But in the Old Testament it says, God said, I make the, the light and create evil. Well, that's the way the translators translated it. But that word create can mean either to make or to cut down as a tree. Well, which one do you pick? Did God make evil or does he cut it down? Well, their understanding of the nature, the character and the nature of God is going to be, is going to be the determining factor of which way they translate it. But not all translators had a correct translation of God. That's why the Bible says we should judge the word by the word. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word should be established. Here, where they use griefs and sorrows instead of sickness and pains, that's just dishonest. I'm sure I'll get letters about being blasphemous. But folks, the translators knew. They knew that these words that they translated into this benign sickness and grief or benign uh, griefs and sorrows. They knew that these words were always used in connection with the physical body. They knew that these words meant healing. There's no way they could know the language and not know that. Now, I'm not trying to condemn anybody, but what would be the reason for them not translating it accurately 
for not using the meanings of these words the same way they did in other places in the Old Testament. Well, clearly they didn't believe that Jesus died for our sickness as well as our sins. Now, folks, this, uh, this isn't just true where the translators are concerned. Look at the preaching that's done and has been done throughout the hundreds of years since Jesus walked here on the earth. Look at the teaching that's done where scriptures, some that we even looked at this morning, are denied and rejected so that some church idea or church doctrine can be promoted instead. I don't know about you, but I'm going to stick with what the Bible says. He is despised and rejected a man, a man of sorrows, pains, and acquainted with griefs or sicknesses. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. Here's this word again. Griefs means sickness and carried our pains. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. Now back up to verse 4. Surely, only time the word surely is used in this messianic chapter is concerning sickness and disease. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. Surely. Now rather than focus on the words griefs and sorrows, sicknesses and pains any further, let me point out two other words to you in this verse. Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. You see that word born? You see the word carried? Those are two words, different words, but they're Levitical words. They're used in connection with the substitutionary work of the sacrifice. In the Old Testament, when the scapegoat would be brought before the high priest on the Day of Atonement, he would lay his hands on the head of the goat and he would pronounce all the sins of Israel upon that goat. And then it was carried away, led away into the wilderness by a strong man. And out in the wilderness, it was turned loose or put in a position where the judgment of God would fall upon that animal instead of the people of Israel who rightly deserved it. So here where it says that, that he, born, he bore and carried our sicknesses and pains. It's talking about a substitutionary work. Now that's what not everybody in the church will accept. That's where the controversy is. We know God can heal, they'll say. God can do anything. He's all powerful. But the question is, who will he heal? See, if the healing is a part of the atoning work of Jesus, then healing from sickness and disease belongs to you just like salvation from sin. And you can access the healing power of God because of what Jesus has already done to receive your healing, just like you can access the power of God to be born again and to be made righteous. Now, some will say that's not carrying away the sins or the sickness and disease. Those words don't mean that. Well, let's read a little bit further. Look in verses 11 and 12. It says, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many and he shall bear their iniquities. See that word bear? That's the same word that's used up in verse 4. 
Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he has poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many. And made intercession for the transgressors. See that word bear? That's the other word that's used in verse 4. So here's the point. The Bible says, and these words literally mean, uh, these two words, born and carried, literally means to carry away or to lift up a heavy burden for someone else or in their stead. In other words, it's a substitutionary term. That's why it's a Levitical word, words. It's a substitutionary term. So whatever bore and carried mean in verse 4, they have to mean the same thing when they're used in verse 11 and, uh, 10 and 11, or 11 and 12, I guess. Well, what did they mean concerning, sickness, uh, concerning sin? Everybody understands that Jesus paid the price for us as our substitute, where sin is concerned. But the Bible says that he made the same work concerning sickness and disease. Now, whichever way you want to have it, it's got to be the same for both. If Jesus didn't carry away our sins and iniquities as our substitute, then that means we're still condemned. That means the Bible is a lie. But if bore and carry means the same thing in verse 4 that it means in verses 11 and 12, thank God it does, then that means Jesus paid a substitutionary price for sickness and disease so that healing is ours. I want to read to you or refer you to... Uh, Verse 10, see where it says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. This is the word grief that's used above that means sickness. Literal translations of this verse say God had made him sick. God made him sick. Now what does that mean that he made him sick? Well, remember over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, it says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Well, how did God make him sin? He laid on him the iniquities of us all, the Bible says. But in the same way, he made him sick. That doesn't mean Jesus had cancer in his body. It doesn't mean that he had leprosy on the cross. It means that he paid the price for it. God placed it upon him changed his nature now I know a lot of people don't like to hear this but Jesus had to die spiritually unless uh, if he's going to be our substitute so when he was made the sin nature he did it as a substitutionary work so that you might be made righteous so when God made him sick that means he paid the price for sickness and disease so that you might be made healed or whole Isaac Lesser, the Lesser translation is uh, the only English translation that the Orthodox Jews accept and, and recognize. Isaac Lesser says of this phrase, he has made him sick. The Lesser translation translates this phrase in this way. And through his bruise was healing granted to us. Now that's from the translation that the only, the only translation that the Orthodox Jews will accept. They know it's faithful to the language. They may not like what it says. They may not agree with what it says. But that's what's faithful to the language. 
So when God made him sick, when God put him to grief, literally he made him sick. He made him sick as a substitutionary work for us or as our substitute. You remember the Psalm, the 103rd Psalm? David said, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. You remember what those benefits were? He forgiveth all thine iniquities. He healeth all thy diseases. He redeemeth thy life from destruction and crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. He satisfies thy mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Now, how did he do those things? We know from the first thing that David said, he forgiveth all thine iniquities. Well, how did he forgive our iniquities? He forgave our iniquities through the substitutionary work on the cross. Then how does he heal all our diseases? Through the same substitutionary work on the cross. Now turn with me over to Matthew chapter 8. You know, I think one of the mistakes that people make when they're searching for healing or desiring their healing it's easy to want to get somebody to pray for you and get relief from whatever condition is coming against you. But I think people would be better served by, instead of coming and saying, Pastor, pray for me that I might be healed, by saying, teach me the word so that I can know how to accept what belongs to me. The Bible says God sent his word and healed them. If that means everybody then all of us have a right to claim our healing by faith. Verse 16, Matthew chapter 8, verse 16. When the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils. And he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Now this is Matthew, inspired by the Holy Ghost, telling us what Isaiah 53, 4 means. This is an inspired Holy Ghost commentary on Isaiah 53, 4. And notice what it says. It said this healing event that took place in Capernaum fulfilled what Isaiah said. Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. But did Jesus fulfill it in Capernaum? Isn't that fulfilled by Jesus' work on the cross? That's what Paul said. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Then that means this can't be the fulfillment of what Jesus would do, the, substitute, the substitutionary work that Jesus would do concerning sins and sickness because he hadn't yet been to the cross. So this is not the fulfillment of what Isaiah said would happen. Well, then what's it the fulfillment of? If this is fulfilled, Jesus took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. We know that was completed by the beating he took in Pilate's court that was surrounding one of the events surrounding his crucifixion, right? Well, he's not crucified yet. So what does it fulfill? Folks, there's only one thing that it can fulfill, and that is to show us who can be healed. That's the only fulfillment that could take place at this event in Capernaum. Well, who does it tell us can be healed? Again, it says, when the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils. 
And he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. The fulfillment that took place at that point is to show us who Isaiah 53, 4 was intended for. And the answer to that is all that were sick. He healed all that were sick. He healed all that were sick. See, Isaiah 53, 4 isn't fulfilled without the knowledge that healing belongs to everybody. And that fulfillment was completed by Jesus going to the cross. Can I ask you something? Why did Jesus only begin his ministry at age 30? Much of the church world, maybe most of the church world, I would guess, believes that Jesus healed the sick to prove that he was the Son of God. Would he only become the Son of God at age 30? The Bible says he was born of a virgin because the Holy Ghost overshadowed her. So from the time of his natural birth, he was the Son of God, wasn't he? Well, then why did he wait till age 30? If he's going to prove that he's the Son of God by healing, why did it only come after John the Baptist baptized him in the Jordan River? Well, Jesus gives us the answer to that. Again, in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. He's anointed me. The Bible says Jesus made himself of no reputation. Philippians chapter 2, about verse 5. He made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant. What that literally means from the Greek language is that he laid aside his heavenly power and glory and came to the earth. That means when Jesus was born into the earth, he did not operate. He did not have upon him any longer the heavenly power and glory that he had to create the world. He's in the earth operating as a man. He's got the nature of God. His spirit is born of God. So he's righteous and without sin. That was the importance of the virgin birth. To bypass the male contribution to the birthing process. That was replaced by God himself. So he was born of a woman, born of a virgin, without sin or sickness or disease or any other such thing. He was born into this world righteous. But when the Holy Ghost came on him in the Jordan River, when he was baptized by John to fulfill the prophecy, when the Holy Ghost came upon him, all of a sudden he's got miracle working power. And he says so. He says many times throughout the gospel, I'm not the one doing the works. Well, he sure looks like the one doing the works. What's he saying? He's not saying that the works aren't working through him. He's saying, I'm not the originator. It's not my power that's doing it. He's saying it's the power of the, the Holy Ghost upon him that enables him to heal the sick. Did Jesus ever get sick? See, if Jesus makes the distinction between the power of God on him and who he is, and he talks about that many times throughout the four Gospels. He recognizes the difference between him himself and the power that's come on him to do the work of God. 
You remember in John chapter 2, the first miracle he performed was at the wedding of Cana in Galilee. You remember how the story went? His mother, this must be a relative, for his mother to have the position that she had to make sure that all the refreshments and the wine and everything kept flowing. She comes to Jesus in the middle of this celebration, wedding celebration, and she says they're out of wine. And Jesus says, what do I have to do with that? It's almost like he's used to her trying to push him into doing something. If not that, then why? That's the only explanation I could come up with. But he says, woman, what have I to do with this? My hour is not yet come. And then she turns to the servants and says something that I find remarkable. She turns to the servants and says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Now, folks, my mom loves me. But I doubt very seriously in a situation like that if she would respond in the same way. Whatever he says do, do it. She must be used to him having some kind of unusual results as a result of the things he says. Now, folks, remember Adam's original condition. Genesis 1.26 says that God made man in his image and after his likeness for the purpose of having authority here on the earth. Well, Jesus was in the earth in much the same condition that Adam was before the fall. There's no sin that's been passed upon him. There's no spiritual death that's touched him in his life or in his body in any way. The means of exercising authority for mankind is the same as the way God exercised authority when he created the earth, and that's by speaking words. So is there any reason that you can think of why Mary would tell the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it, unless she's used to his words bringing about some kind of unusual results? Now, folks, if Jesus had the power of God all throughout his life and didn't use it to help people, how would that be right? But on the other hand, if the Bible is literally to be accepted as literal, the truth to be accepted as literal truth, then Jesus didn't have the power to heal anybody else until after John baptized him in the Jordan River and the Holy Ghost came upon him. But Mary's never seen a miracle. At least she's never seen a miracle that was provided for the benefit of other people. But there were certainly... It's certainly possible that there were miraculous things that took place in Jesus' life because he was righteous and he exercised his authority on the earth. What else would make her say whatever he says do, do it? So let's consider this as a possibility. If Jesus was the righteousness of God here on the earth, which he had to be if he was the son of God, no part of his life nor his body was tainted with sin. That means something protected him from sickness and disease before he was anointed to the Holy Ghost. That tells us a little bit more about what righteousness does in separating us from the work of the devil. 
See, if Jesus was separated from sickness and disease, never experienced sickness and disease in any way whatsoever. And it would be impossible for him to, to live a sinless life. Living a sinless life is not just not committing sin, but not being affected by any of the consequences of sin, which would include sickness and disease. So if Jesus was never sick, before he was anointed of the Holy Ghost to, to heal sickness and disease, what kept him well? You remember the Bible says in Romans chapter 5, that they that receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in this life by one Jesus Christ. Folks, Jesus reigned in his own life through the righteousness that he was born into. And that's the same righteousness that you and I are made. Isaiah chapter 53, one of the verses we didn't read, said he bore upon himself the punishment of us all. What is the punishment of sin? Guilt and sickness. And he bore on himself as our substitute the punishment of us all. Now let's consider something. Let's say a Christian sins. I know, far-fetched. <laughs> but let's say that a Christian tells a lie. And there are those that know that he told the lie. The lie is shown. What does that mean? See, one of the things we're going to have to learn to do if we walk with God and walk in authority, walk in the power that the Holy Ghost gives to us, one of the things we're going to have to do is we're going to have to understand what things mean. And the devil is notorious by trying to convince you that some things mean, things that mean something that they don't. And it's always an attack on the word. So what does it mean that a Christian told a lie? Does it mean the Bible is not true? That he really was not made righteous? Clearly he's not living up to righteousness. But does it mean that he wasn't made righteous? He doesn't lose his righteousness. So might we say that a a lie told by a Christian is a symptom of unrighteousness. But we know from the Bible that it doesn't change who he is. It doesn't change who God made him to be. Well, in the like manner, why should we accept a symptom of sickness to disprove the, the truth that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and with his stripes we were healed? What does a symptom of sickness mean? Not a thing in the world. When it comes to the healing power of God or the healing will of God. What does stumbling into sin mean for the Christian, for the believer? Not a thing in the world. Not when it comes to the fact that we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. And folks, that's the point where most Christians do not cross. That is the very single point that will take you from being a Christian that used to up and down feels good when you feel good feels bad when there's 
aches and pains or sickness attacking your body in comparison to somebody that recognizes who they are, the work of the devil in the earth, but the work of God that's overcome it. When you can come to accept the fact that you're righteous, even though you may do unrighteous things, that it doesn't change the fact that you are righteous, it can't change the fact that you are righteous, and recognize in the same manner a symptom of sickness, even a diagnosis of sickness and disease, does not change the fact that Jesus bore your sickness and carried your pains. And with his stripes you were healed. Peter attaches these things together. The early church understood this. 1 Peter 2.24, he said, who, has, who in, his own self, in his own self bear our sins on the body on the tree? And by his stripes we were healed. He's talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. He's talking about the substitutionary work of God concerning sin and sickness. You can't separate them, folks, because sickness is the result of sin. Maybe not individual sin, usually not of individual sin. But sin is what opened the door to sickness and disease. But thank God through his bruise, healing was granted to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can say with confidence and with boldness because Jesus was our substitute. He died as a sacrifice for our sins. We can say clearly that we've been made righteous by his blood. But Father, we rejoice in the fact that we can also say that because he took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses, that with his stripes we are healed. So we'll not let stumbles into sin rob us from the reality of righteousness. And we shall not allow symptoms of sickness and disease to rob us of the healing work that Jesus performed for us. Thank you, Father, that they both are ours. And that because we're righteous, made righteous by the blood of Jesus. We thank you that no sin, no mistake, no error can rob us of that righteousness. We are righteous forever. In the same way, we'll not allow symptoms of sickness and disease to rob us of the fact that we were healed by the stripes of Jesus. We were healed. Well, Lord, if we were healed, that means we are healed. That means healing is ours now. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Body, respond to the word of God. Be healed from the top of your head to the soles of your feet. Sickness depart from our flesh. Because Jesus paid the price for us to walk in divine health. Body, you line up with the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen.
Folks, there's something good coming. You remember the prayer over in Acts chapter 4 after Peter and John were brought before the council, the Jewish council, the Jewish leadership. They were let go and returned to their own company and informed the group of the church that the things that the leader of the, leaders of the Jews had said, one of the things that they prayed was grant unto thy servants boldness by stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done in the name of thy holy child Jesus. That's some kind of prayer when you think about it. They recognize that there's a boldness that comes only by the healing power of God being manifested. Grant unto thy servants boldness to speak thy word by stretching forth your hand to heal. And that signs and wonders may be done in the name of thy holy child Jesus. There's a lot of good things that have taken place. There's a lot of healing miracles and healing works that are sitting around in this same room. People that have received the healing power of God. God changing things and turning things around that doctors said couldn't be done. But there is a healing work. A stretching forth of God's hand to heal. That's just around the corner. I've seen it a couple of times when I get to a place in prayer. I've seen just enough of it to refuse to have anything less. And I don't know how to say it any other way. I never have liked when preachers talk about the things that are coming like the things of God aren't available now. And that's certainly not what I mean. But I don't know any other way to say it. There is something coming in the area of healing that's going to knock our socks off. Grant unto thy servants boldness that we may speak your word, Father, by stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Bless the Lord. Now I was told before the service that there are two ladies here that want to be filled with the Holy Ghost this morning. Are you in here? If so, wave at me or something. Right there. Okay. See this gentleman over here by the doors? He'll hold up his hand. Leave with him now and he'll take you to the prayer room. They'll minister the Holy Ghost to you and you'll come out speaking with tongues. Amen? Just make your way out over there now. I like that kind of response when people know what they want ahead of time. Amen. Let's all stand.